people don't understand the value of just knowing your audience so well that you're willing to bring in even a smaller audience. And now we they're much bigger. We have a lot more people coming in. But in early days, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, we would have 30 people come in, we'd convert 30% and we'd make $10,000. By the third month, we were doing $33,000, just doing like on 30 to 40 people. First of all, it was a hot mess. So anyone who's getting started doing this, it will be a hot, hot mess. I got on every day, I taught, I was just teaching from my heart. But here's how I knew it worked, like when you're really authentic with yourself, people started buying on day one. And I hadn't even given a sales page. Like they were finding my sales page online and just going on and buying. But almost everybody who gets on the call already wants the program. So they're not getting on a call to look. They're we're getting on a call to finance. That's a very different uh, kind of call. If you want to build a legitimate, profitable online business without shiny objects, without the hypey gimmicks, and without the stress and overwhelm, if you want to make more money without having to be present online all day, every day, pumping out content that nobody sees and hustling DMs to generate leads and sales, then this is the place for you. Welcome to the Digital Trailblazer Podcast, your online business university, where you'll learn how ordinary people start from ground zero with no influence, no email list or audience to sell to, and no business or marketing experience and go from working nine to five jobs to building successful six and seven figure online businesses and all the steps in between. Learn the strategies that worked and what didn't. Learn the mistakes that they made and how to avoid them and then learn their plans for scaling their businesses and taking things to the next level. All so that you can build your business faster and easier and make more money without sacrificing the things that are important to you in your life. I'm your host, Leah Ray Getz, and with me is my husband, Todd. Now let's get to it with today's guest. Hey, Digital Trailblazers, it's Leah Ray Get. Super excited to have you here with our guest, Karina Gardner. Karina, go ahead and introduce yourself and let our audience know what you're all about. My name is Karina Gardner. I am a graphic designer by trade and have gotten into the niche of surface pattern design and crafting design. So I currently uh, create fabrics, quilting cottons for Riley Blake and uh, do crafting uh, supplies for Silhouette. So you might have seen me on the Michaels channel or YouTube channel because I'll do stuff for them as well. And about three years ago, we started a design program. So I have a PhD in design from the University of Minnesota in design. And um, we started a program for people who wanted to learn how to design while they were making money as a designer. So we we kind of cover the gamut. Um, for the most part, our demographic tends to be women who are working on their encore careers. So they were stay-at-home moms and their kids are leaving the house or they're fully retired or they're transitioning from um, an, another career and they want to transition to a more flexible stay-at-home type of career. I love everything, so we're going to digest all of it. But just for pure definitions, because I know there's definitely people in this who are listening that are like, surface design. Like, can you just super clarify for the non-design world people what yeah. exactly that means? Yeah. Surface pattern design is a very interesting term that I actually I do not like very much. That kind of developed because there were all of these illustrators who were getting into flat or 2D designs. So um, most of it is, most people know it as textiles or fabric designs, but it also encompasses wallpaper, wrapping paper, um, journals. So anything that's going to be flat. I was the creative director of Cartabella, which is a scrapbooking company. Um, we were a sister company to Echo Park, so a pretty large company. And that would still be considered surface design because it's 2D design. And the reason we kind of have to separate it out in what we do is because 2D design is quite different than 3D design. And at Silhouette and die cutting files and, and those kinds of things, crickets, uh, those, those types of crafting supplies, those tend to be 3D designs. So we're building, I, I think my most popular design um, is has like 1.5 million views on it on Instagram. And it's me building a giant gingerbread house, all made of paper. So people love that kind of stuff. They like making that kind of stuff. And um, so that's why there's kind of like a differentiation between the two because a 3D designer thinks quite differently than a 2D designer. So you're teaching people how to uh, create a design business. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, but it's a little trickier than that. And I'll tell you why. Because in order to teach a design business, you also have to have skill. 
some of these people have taken little online courses here and there. Um, people think that design or artistry in general is just a creative process. It really isn't. There's a reason we send kids to four-year degree to get design graphic design degrees is because there's actually like technological skills you actually have to have. So you have to have understanding of design principles. You have to have design vocabulary and you have to actually know the software. And unfortunately, the waters have become very muddy over the years because with the advent of Procreate, there's something called Affinity now people like to use. So Inkscape, CorelDRAW, people don't know what products they ought to be learning to be professional. And so they're dabbling in a lot of different softwares, not realizing what the professional software is, which by the way, if you're listening to this and you want to be a designer, it's Adobe software. You have to know it. Like you absolutely have to. They have the the corner on the market, they will continue to have the corner for at least the next three to five years because they are the only ones also integrating AI at this point. So if you're using anything else, you're going to be in trouble. So, or you're going to be relearning stuff. So, um, so there's like a hard skill in, in design. And then there's the soft skill of knowing when to break the rules and to help people and have the vocabulary. And so we're trying to jam in one year, what we teach in four years of school in college, while also teaching people how to create a sustainable business for themselves. So we are very upfront. We tell people it's still going to take you three years to build this business, but we're in it the first year with you. We we put them on an orientation, a six-week track, and then they're like working through. But there are 17 courses in our program and everybody's on a different road plan. So if like you were an emphasis in like, I mean, my undergrad degrees in communication. So you could have an emphasis in advertising or an emphasis in business or an emphasis. That's kind of the way our program works. You have an emphasis in die cutting files or fabric or wallpaper or stickers. And so that's your road plan. But you still have access to all the courses if you wanted to be a fabric designer at some other point. Okay. And so you're just teaching people how to create the designs and that's that's how they run their business. They're not actually creating like the curtains or the clothing? No. Okay. In fact, we actually try to get people away from that. We really want people to create digital designs because the problem is inventory, right? right. So I own another business called Minilube. For many years, it was a physical products company. So we did stuff with Nordstrom. We did stuff with Peak Clothing, which is owned by Charlotte Russe, uh, 500 independent toy stores. And the problem with physicals, every six months, you have to bring in $100,000 worth of inventory. Well, that is a difficult way to start a business if you do not have revenue and upstart. However, if you do digital design, so you're creating digital products that people can download and use themselves. Think about... Uh, uh, well, I don't love this example, but wedding invitations, right? Someone could technically, you could freelance even on Etsy and create like a template and then put in their stuff, send it over to them. They can go get it printed themselves, right? But they pay a lo lower price for getting it done. So there are a lot of different things out there that designers can do where they never touch inventory and they can make a lot of money doing it. And that's really the baseline for all of the money I've made. And so we teach those processes. So, so I would say for the most part, most of our designers get their first sell within 12 weeks, even if they know very little design work, because they understand the process that we teach them to make money. Nice. Yeah. And, and I like that too, that you mentioned Adobe, because I remember, you know, several years ago when Adobe used to be just a product that you bought DVDs and it was like $2,500 and it was really prohibitive for people to, to kind of get into that niche. And now I mean, we use Adobe for our video editing. We use it, you know, we use Photoshop. Every now and then I'll use um, Illustrator. And it's like, it's just a really low monthly subscription. I, if I remember right, it's, if you only need one product, it's like $35. So I think one product's only 20 bucks these days. Oh, like, is it now? Illustrator is like nineteen ninety nine a month. Of course, if you're using everything, it's a better deal to do the $50, $53 and you get everything, which is what we suggest our people to do. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's so much more accessible now to to get into something like this, I think. I think this is a really interesting just business model in general and from an academic perspective as well because I like with COVID and everything that happened and the transition to everything a lot, I think people are really looking outside of the box for learning their trade. So like it accelerated, like I think it was happening, but now it like get pedal to the metal, all of that's happening. So 
I'm curious on your trans, like your decision to trans transition from just being a designer, which is awesome in and of itself, but to adding this business side to it. What what was that like? Take me back to that. Um, so COVID, I I don't think my business would exist without COVID. If I'm being honest, because the problem was I was used to teaching in a university setting. So right, so like if I'm teaching in a university. I'm teaching at the University of Minnesota, for example, which I haven't done for a few years. But if everyone is sitting in my classroom, I can go around, critique everybody's stuff. We can have peer interaction. I can look over your shoulder on your computer to make sure that you are doing Illustrator correctly, right? COVID made it so it was possible for me to go, wait, I think we could do this in an online platform because everybody got used to Zoom. And before that, convincing people to come digitally was like, it was hard. And especially the demographic I work with, um, our median age is 50. And so convincing all of them that they want to be on Zoom with me was going to be like, I have no idea if they're going to be willing to do this. So that's why in a lot of ways, that transition from being a designer and owning a design business, really, there was a great transition into then teaching design. Now, I will say this, part of it was simply because I was 13 years into my design business and I was starting to get a little bit, I won't say hassled, but people started DMing me. I didn't have a huge following, but I made a lot of money for a designer. So the average money people make after after design school is about $50,000 a year if you work in-house. If you're someone who owns your own design business, I think your average is luckily maybe around 30,000, right? So like you're trying to get freelance jobs, you're trying to get book illustration jobs, like it's all word of mouth and it's a pain in the butt. It's really hard to get jobs. And anyway, so all the things. And I was making $250,000 and people were like, what? Like, and not that I made that public information, but like they could kind of see like I was on a lot of platforms, I was doing a lot of stuff and I didn't have a big social media falling. And yet- it's pretty obvious I was making pretty good money as a designer. And so I just thought it was really obvious. You know, like when you're the person who does it, you're like, well, this is how you make money. Just do this. So people started asking. Well, I had already had this problem. People were asking to be my intern. People were asking if I would teach them what they could, needed to learn how to do. And, and so finally, we just started a program and it shot off. Um, I will tell you, like the first week I launched it, I made more in that month than I made in a single month in design. And that's when I was like, oh, I might have something here. Like people really want to know how I make money. And I made pretty good money as a designer. And so I was just like, I like this is incredible. And so um, it's worked out very nicely. We're we're almost we're not even three years old yet. We three years old in April. Um, My team before it was just me. We are now at a team of 14 people bringing three more people on this month. So we should be at 17 by the end of the month um, and just growing rapidly. So with that growth, like it's really inspiring, number one, to be able to grow super fast. But there's obviously obstacles that occur when you grow super fast. So what are some of the challenges that you've had to overcome in doing this? Yeah, it's like the dark side nobody wants to talk about because they're so excited. You grew to multiple millions so quickly. It's just like, there is a dark side to all of this. Um, and and really what it is, is the, the sheer amount of growing pains mean that our processes and systems have changed almost every six months. And so that means you are reinventing the wheel for your company and program like from scratch every six months because something would happen and we would have more people or something would happen and we'd have to build an entire team. Like, it's like, I mean, from scratch, start the training, start all over again, because it became really obvious, you know, at the beginning, it's just you. Like, I was like, I'll get on a meeting with everybody every week and I'll teach them what they need to know. It's going to be great. And then suddenly you have 100 people and you're like, oh, I can't do that anymore. Right. Or the members start. My favorite is we have an amazing community and that is not due to like us, but because of the type of people we attract. They love being together. They like doing stuff together. So that meant we ended up implementing all kinds of crazy things that just require support. And so suddenly we had to put in design coaches to pay attention to whatever was doing. We have a really intricate critique system. So I was like, how do we mimic the university system? And we do that directly in an online program. And I haven't really seen it done well. So it was like, okay, like we got to figure this out. 
So for about the first two years, my critique sessions would go four hours long. So like everybody just bring in all their stuff, like almost. And I was just like, this cannot go on. I was just like, what, what's going to happen when we have 700 people? Like, like I am in trouble here. Um, so a lot of things that happened and the changes we ended up making were based on pain from growth. I think so many people, when they're just getting started, it looks like it's, you know, I just got to get to the 10,000 a month. I just got to, it's just going to be so easy. Everything. Every time you take a step up there, something breaks or something happens, a bigger problem occurs that you have to solve and then you can take it to the next level. And it's that back and forth. And it's, I mean, that's why there is the revenue opportunities that we do have access to. It's because you are constantly problem solving and just trying to take it to the next level. I know we recently um, added uh, a different process to our business and it has been, I don't know how many inter- 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 iterations, integrate the, you know the word I'm talking about, uh, through the process where, you know, at first, okay, this part's working really good. Okay, so now we're going a little bit further in the pipeline. Okay, now this part's broken. Okay, now we got to fix this part, but no, then this part breaks. Okay, then we got to fix this part. And I think people don't understand how how committed to the process and to fixing and problem solving you have to be to really build a successful business. And if I think back to when we were first starting out uh, with online business, I remember getting some really bad advice <laughs> from from some from some other uh, online business owners. And I, I remember specifically someone saying that, you know, if you can make your first sale, then, uh, you know, getting to six figures or seven figures is is not that hard because you just do the same thing, but just more of it. And now that we've been there, it's like, no, that like the, the things that you do to, to get to your first five figures are not the same things that you do to get to your first six figures and then your first seven figures. Like things change. Like you can't just scale exponentially that, that same thing that you're doing. And I think a lot of people don't realize that the, the growing pains. I remember when we first started selling online courses and, uh, you know, we were maybe bringing in 30 to 50,000 a month. And then we suddenly jumped up to 200,000 in a single month. And the things that we had to do to maintain and run our business at at thirty or fifty thousand a month were way different than the things that we had to do when we were pulling in one or two hundred thousand a month. Yeah, that is, and that is exactly why we have rebuilt processes every six months. Yeah. Like every time you have a big jump, something breaks. And here's a really good example that we're currently living through right now. Last September, I. I kind of was looking at our stuff and I was like, I think we have a lead problem. You know, like you kind of go in, you diagnose what's going on. And I was like, oh, we have a lead problem. Okay. So we figure it out. We go through January. We open up the books. We're in the middle of changing softwares. And we realize, oh, no, no, no. We do not have a lead problem anymore. We have a setter problem. We don't have enough enrollment specialists to touch everybody. And especially when we saw that we had 2,500 leads that had never even been touched at all. That's when you start going, okay, like, and so you're constantly diagnosing the problem. So now for the last two weeks, guess what? All my my entire sales team, my executive team, like all we've been doing, fixing setter processes, fixing it, trying to figure out the workflow so everything goes to the right place, trying to make good decisions about who's getting what, where there's getting what, and hiring. Now we're hiring. So then that changes. So like, I'm not spending time working in my program. Instead, I'm just trying to fix all the processes happening on my team. I I can feel your pain and the pain of seeing those 2,500 untouched leads. That was just January, by the way. That was just January. Like when we go back and look, it's like traumatic almost. Like we're just like, oh my gosh, look at all of these loose ends we had. And I had some ideas that there were loose ends, but as we moved into the new software, it became very obvious what the loose ends were. And yeah, I mean, Here's the other thing. Every time you make a, a change, like for example, for a software, we are in the middle of integrating five softwares into a single software. We are in week 10 right now and it affects every component. So every member of the team is involved. And so we've had to have two or three meetings a week just on software to make sure everybody's involved. And so um, I just, I think it's a fascinating thing because if someone had told me three years ago that Karina, you're not going to be spending your time working on design. You're going to be in meetings. You're going to be fixing everyone's processes and you're going to be training people. I'd been like, no, no way, no way. But that is what the job is. Yeah. I think so many folks that get started in their business because they're really good at their specialty. And it's like, oh, it's so much bigger than that. 
<laughs> well, and and the thing is, there's gurus out there that that tell you that oh, you can just stay in your lane, just do what you're good at, and outsource everything else, right? And it, the reality is that that's not how you build a business. Like you can't, you can't have your business rely on people that might leave, right? Like like if your business is dependent, uh, like for example, if if you don't know how to generate leads and you outsource that, and suddenly, uh, maybe you decide that you want to try to bring that in house or uh, the person that's generating leads for you suddenly decides to quit or they stop what, for whatever reason, right? And your business is then dead in the water. Well, you're not really a business owner then, right? <laughs> you need to learn how to, to to run your own business if you actually want to be a business owner. If all you want to do is just be good at what, you, what, at what you're doing and outsource everything else, well, then you don't really want to be a business owner. You, you just want to be a freelancer, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's a tough lesson to learn, don't you think? Like, it's a tough lesson. You almost have to get into it before you realize, you know, I kept I kept telling people, I, I'm like a big believer in my designers. A lot of them don't have like the mindset to call themselves designers. And so one of the things we're training them on is tell other people you're a designer because there are actually a lot of benefits to that. Lots of freelance work comes through word of mouth. There's a lot of confidence that goes into it. And then your family members also start believing it and they start supporting you better. So there's like all these things when you actually call yourself the thing that you are. And it's so funny because I really teach this very strongly. And yet I myself had, it was like almost a year before I could call myself a CEO. But I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm totally, like finally the day hit and I was just like, I am a CEO. Like I'm in meetings all day long. I'm running trainings. I, I'm the only one who has the vision for this company for where it needs to go. And I'm the CEO. But it took me a while to like really tell myself like, this is where you are, Karina, and this is an okay place to be. So what are some of the strategies that you've used to grow so big? Like, where are these people coming from? How are they finding you? Yeah. So uh, I think you have to get over a little bit of the fear of Facebook ads. <laughs> I think that was like my first like... I mean, especially as a designer, you're like, I do not want to be playing with this. The second thing is, I think that people don't spend enough time figuring out who they really want to cater to. I knew, I very much knew, because I knew my people very well. I knew who was buying from me. I knew it was an average age 50-year-old woman, women who are ready for their encore career. Um, and a lot of it was because of my own warm audience of people who were creating my designs. And so it was sort of this idea of like, hey, if you are like buying $200 a month of my design work, wouldn't it be awesome if you just knew how to design it yourself and then you wouldn't have to modify my design work, but you could just create it yourself and then why not just sell it as well? And suddenly, so like if you really know your audience very well, so for mine, there is a little bit of education. So because of that, we do something called a design boot camp. It's $27. It's a low offer. It's currently evergreen. Some people would call it like a trip wire. But for us, we think of it as an education wire, because if you don't understand what we do, then it's not going to make sense to go through, you know, you hear like VSLs and stuff like that. It's just not enough educate. We have one of those, but it's still, we still send people to boot camp for $27. The $27 does a couple of things. First of all, it shows that you're qualified and you're willing to spend money on your education. So even at the early days, people used to say you have to have like, you know, 2,000 people to show up to a challenge to win. I would only have 30 people show up to a challenge. And then we would sell them and we would get in 30% of them. So like people don't understand the value of just knowing your audience so well that you're willing to bring in even a smaller audience. And now we they're much bigger. We have a lot more people coming in. But in early days, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, we would have 30 people come in. I would sell. And back then, the price was a lot less. We'd sell. We'd convert 30% and we'd make $10,000. By the third month, we were doing $33,000 just doing like on 30 to 40 people. And so there's a ton of power in just knowing your person, just yeah. knowing who they are. So were you filling those from like like a Facebook ad directly to the boot camp or what was what did that look like? We still do that. We're still okay. very much um, we don't send them through a whole bunch of loopholes. Instead, it's just a Facebook ad inviting them to come to a design boot camp. If you've ever wondered why you are not profitable or you're struggling to create design work that sells, design boot camp will tell you how to do it. Um, we have a very in fact the the time we're uh, doing this, I'm doing a live one right now. So um, it's kind of our gift. We do a live one 
uh, two or three times a year. And then people get access to that one. They can watch it. It's usually filled with new material. So for example, this week, people were asking me about AI. I totally jumped on on, on what's going on with AI and designers. And so there's like a little bit of an update um, on you know what we see going on in the industry and why you shouldn't be afraid to become a designer and that there's even more possibilities for you. So Facebook ad to the bootcamp. And then are you... What's sort of your sales process with the bootcamp? Is it like last day, open cart sort of thing? Are you spreading, sprinkling throughout? What's your strategy? Yeah. Um, so I will, t- well, let me tell you how I started. First of all, it was a hot mess. So anyone who's getting started doing this, it will be a hot, hot mess. I got on every day. I taught. I was just t- teaching from my heart. But here's how I knew it worked. Like when you're really authentic with yourself, people started buying on day one. And I hadn't even given a sales page. Like they were finding my sales page online and just going on and buying. So like that's how powerful it can be. Okay. Um, so our process like it, it changed and evolved. But I finally got to the point where probably about three months into doing this and I did one once a month. Um, I usually open up cart on Wednesday so I actually tell everything, but then they keep coming out Thursday and Friday because of really relevant information. But I open up cart on Wednesday and I talked about the program and what we do. And then we keep it open until the following Monday. And then I used to do a 15-minute consult. We always told the price back then as well, like right there on the Wednesday. We told the price, we give them a sales page, and then they could get on a 15-minute consult because very often I needed to talk to them, like the ones who were on the fence especially, I needed to see if they were good for the program and believe this is a weird thing. We say no to people. So if you're not a good fit, like we do not need you in our program. We're like, we don't want you to spend money with us. And uh, people might think that's crazy, but I promise you it saves you lots of customer service issues. So um, there have been people we've brought in that I should have said no to. And I regret, uh, regret so much, like so much regret. Um, So that was our process. And then last year, we brought on an admissions team. And that's because we could kind of see the direction all the everything we're doing is going. Mm -hmm. Um, We are going to be seeking out accreditation from really reliable sources. We would like to outsource as I've been lecturing at universities. We're starting to see there would be a lot of power in being able to partner with universities so that they could get their kids into what we're doing. Um, I went to a university and like literally the kids, I mean, 250 kids were just, they had never heard this stuff before. They had no idea they could make money. They've all been, I think art departments in the United States are at the bottom of the the whole. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you guys, like you have so much power to make money. Your professors don't know how to teach you because they never owned businesses before. So the bottom line is like, as we've kind of changed, I brought in an admissions team. And the reason we call it an admissions team, not a sales team, is because of that whole process. Because we kind of are more, uh, we always tell people we're like your master's degree program that you never had. That's what we're teaching you. And so we, there's an admissions process. So now, and we've changed this process a million times, now we have a, um, a quiz. People take the quiz and it sends you either to a landing page if you are not a great fit for the higher programs. Mm -hmm. If you're good for the middle programs, because we have tiers and people can work their way, like freshman, Mm -hmm. sophomore, junior, like they can work their way through the tiers. If they're in the middle tier, they go to our uh, enrollment specialist, which is our setters, normally called setters on a sales team. And if you are ready for the highest tier based on your answers with us, we send you to a closer or what we call our admission specialists. So with this process, this your main funnel that you use with Facebook ads, do you have an idea like ROI or conversion rates or any of that sort of numbers? Yeah, it's a little bit tricky because we kind of do it by segments. So let me talk to you about it in segments, right? Okay. So the first thing is $27 does not cover the cost of a single lead in my dreams, right? Like people are like, why is this 20? Like once we're like, why is this $27? I'm like, if you had any idea, it cost, it used to cost us at the height of it about $180 per lead to get them in, right? And I was, like, I was going to ask about that because I, yeah. I was wondering. Yeah, about $27. But if you know your conversion rate is high, you, you spend the money, right? right? I think we are right now in a place where we're only spending about $40 per lead because I have gotten better at the Facebook ads. I spent some time. Meta is actually really awesome. They will schedule calls. If you're spending a certain amount of money, 
they will schedule calls with you. I will tell you our ad spend right now is about $55,000 a month is kind of where we're at right now. Um, and we're spending about $40, $45 per head. So if that gives you an idea. The other thing that's nice is we actually have an add-on workbook for $17. That helps a little bit with the ad spend money, right? But I would say for the most part, what we do is we budget that advertising is only going to be like taking care of about one fifth of it. So about what? I don't even know what that is. 20%, right? Is going to be carried over for ad spend. So if that helps anyone, because I think it's ads are scary and there's a good reason for it. It's really hard to like get that money back unless you're adding stuff and adding stuff and adding stuff. But we don't want our people to have money fatigue. Like we want them to come get educated and then get really excited about coming into our program. I was just looking at the numbers this morning. So what it, this is where it gets tricky, right? Where the numbers get a little tricky because we have a certain percentage that go into an enrollment specialist. Then we have a certain percentage that end up getting from an enrollment specialist over to a admissions specialist. So I will just tell you the bottom line is about, I would say, 45% end up on a call of some sort, some months even higher than that, because we're so targeted to them. That's why like, that's why I wasn't worried about a $180 lead, because if we can get 50% of them on a call, then um, the other thing that's really weird about our program is almost everyone, I would say there's probably maybe 5%, but almost everybody who gets on the call already wants the program. So they're not getting on a call to look there, we're getting on a call to finance. That's a very different uh, kind of call. And so we're getting on a call to finance. And so um, the closer rate in January was horrible. And the reason is because we opened up, instead of them having to go to an enrollment specialist, we opened it up and let them go to a, an admissions specialist or a closer as well. And so we didn't have enough like filters to keep yeah. people in the right place. So I think I think our call rate was down at 10% um, where people were actually closing from that. We've since fixed that. And I would say that was just January. And it's because we had so many people on calls. We couldn't, the set, let setters could not handle, clearly. We had a, set, yes. we had a setter problem. <laughs> so it's basically like the closers were doing the setter's job as well, right? That right. was what was happening. But I would say, generally speaking, based on all the less other months, we have a pretty consistent 30% conversion rate. So very, very consistent conversion rate. I think it's going to be higher this month because we've put even more filters in place than we had in previous months. Um, I'm going to tell you this. I think this is one of the biggest lessons I've ever learned from this last month of seeing what's happening now in our sales process. Every time something doesn't work, I, you know, I put it to the side and go, okay, that didn't, that didn't work for us. And this happened to us last September. We were using a quiz. We were using Typeform. And we were using a quiz and we still were really annoyed. People would lie on the quiz about how much money they could make or whatever. And so they'd end up in admissions when they should have gone to enrollment, right? And so we were like, quizzes don't work, which is absolutely the wrong thing to decide, okay? <laughs> but that's what we felt like. We were like, quizzes do not work, okay? Right. So two weeks ago, we implemented a new quiz system and it is working like a breeze. It is working beautifully. We just changed up the questions. We like we had probably three meetings where we changed the questions over and over again until we could get it all the way down, niche down to the right thing. Mm -hmm. And the quiz is working. And so I think one of the things in business that we do that's so detrimental that people don't realize that they're doing is they try something and go, well, that doesn't work. And so then they go do something else when you just did it wrong. It didn't work for you the way you thought it was going to work. Absolutely. We hear that all the time. Like Facebook ads don't work. This doesn't work. Like, actually, they do. Like, let's look at how it was actually implemented. So, okay. Percentage, 30% of calls closing, just to clarify. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's awesome. And then um, your your enrollment specialists, your setters, do they offer the downsells and sell those themselves if they're not? Like, what is that? What's the down nope. seller if they're not for the mm -hmm. big package? How does that work? Yeah. It's so interesting because Design Suite is six tiers. 
So technically, the downsell would be the lowest tier, but we still send them to an admission specialist for that. What it does, the enrollment specialist, what they do, so we're a little bit different than most companies because we kind of treat it more like a college admissions. But the enrollment specialist, what they're doing is they're finding out what they want to design if they're really a good fit. Like if they just tell us they have art and they want to make physical products, we're like, this is, we are not for you. Like we need you to like, we'll send you somewhere else. Like we will try to find some place for them to go. Um, but usually that's not the case. People know they want to do digital once they've come to a boot camp. They understand our processes, why we do what we do. And so then it's niching down on the finances, right? Like financially, can you even afford our program? And they say, well, I can do this much per month. So based on that answer, they still go to a closer or admission specialist because then that that person can go, okay, based on your answers and what you want to accomplish, I think you should start at this tier. So if you start at breakthrough, then you can bump up, do the artwork, do the coursework, and in three months, we'll contact you again and let's bump you up to the next tier. And then financially, you can afford that tier, right? So we're because we're a tiered system, it's a little bit different than a regular like downsell, upsell. We used to call those tiers downsells. Now they're not. Now we're recognizing especially even the example I had of Simone, who was in Australia, she started in Breakthrough. She's one of our best students ever. A month later, she realized she could do it and jumped right into Mastermind, which is our main uh, money-making program and, our, and a very expensive program. But it's like they sometimes we don't mind that. We, actually, in some ways, we like that because we don't want them spending a lot of money unless they understand what they've gotten into. So I'm curious, this process where that you have now where you are running Facebook ads to a to a $27 workshop and then after the workshop you're you're getting them into your higher ticket program. Is that the same process that you've always had or did you start it out with say a free VSL or free webinar and So I started with my warm leads which I wouldn't have even used those words because I didn't know what they meant back then. Like 3 years ago I've been like what's a warm lead? So this is what I actually did. I took one of my courses and I had no intention of starting a program, by the way. Like I joined a mastermind and in that mastermind, they were like, why don't you start a program? I was like, well, maybe I should. So um, I was I was selling a course that was pretty inexpensive. I think they were like $200. Like I, I sold like a fabric design course. And what I did was I just sold the one course and I created a Facebook group you got the course. And then every week I just showed up in the Facebook group and I didn't even really coach. It was just kind of like, how are you guys doing? What do you like? What do you don't like? So in some ways it was market research, but I literally thought it was the real product, right? Like I thought this was the product. Like I'm going to sell a $200 course and then I'm going to get into a Facebook group and I'm going to talk to them and it's going to be great. Okay. It's not comprehensive design, right? It's just like this one tiny little thing of design. And so what happened was I did that like two times, like pretty early on. And all the people who joined, which by the way, I just got from my Instagram following, which at the time, I think maybe I had 10,000 10, people following me, maybe 9,000. It wasn't a huge following, okay? Mm -hmm. So um, it wasn't like I had massive. And it was sort of word of mouth. Like I kind of like, I had a newsletter list with like 3,000 people on it that I just sold like crafting stuff to. So I just kind of like, put it out there. I was like, I think I'm going to teach this class. Does anybody want to come take it? I mean, it's like very like, ah, no, like, I don't know if it's going to work. So I did. And the feedback I got from this, and I think this is, I, I think this is the thing I'm really good back uh, as I look back on the way we do things is we change our program. We've changed our courses based on what members ask for, period, always. So that's why we have such a booming community, why we can't get rid of people, because we literally do what they ask us to do. Mm -hmm. And so in that course, the, the, even though I didn't make that much money, I really was like learning. I didn't realize this. I was learning what people liked. I was learning that the course actually didn't matter, that at the end of the day, everybody just liked being with me and understanding design and talking about it. Like they wanted to be together. And so then when I started the program, what I did was the very first week I had it, I just shot individual emails and videos. Like I got, uh, there's a video thing that connects to your email. I can't even remember what it is. Yeah. And I don't remember the I, name. Yeah. I don't remember the name either. But literally, like I spent two days and people are scared to do this, but this is, I think, what you have to do because I, I went into this going, if I can help 
one person, this is going to be worth it. Like I can help one person become a great designer and make money being a designer. I think if you go through it like that, you actually create a really great program that helps one person that actually helps everybody. So what I did was everybody who had signed up for anything, who had like kind of showed interest, I just made them a video in email and it just said, hi, hi, Diane or hi, um, Jeannie. Hey, listen, I am going to start this program. I'm going to call it Design Suite. It's going to have this many courses in it. I'm going to come on every single week on Tuesdays at this time and I'm going to teach you and it costs this much and it's going to be for six months. Are you interested in that? Because I think it would be really cool if you were like one of my first designers. I just sent a whole bunch of those out. I made $18,000 that week. And I was just like, what the heck? I think I got something here. And so I think that when you're starting, I didn't do any Facebook ads. I was just like literally being me on emails in video, like if you want to send Loom videos or whatever, but it wasn't Loom, it was something else. I can't remember what it was. But it's like, I just was literally being me, being like, I want to teach you design. If you don't want to, no big deal, because I was definitely not a hard sales person. I still am not. Like, I still kind of struggle with that. And I was just kind of like, I just would love to teach you design. And I could not believe. And and our price was low. That was the other thing. I think it was, I'm not even going to tell you what the price is because of the <laughs> price is now. But like, it was pretty low. And here's the thing. All those people, they came in, what, I think we had eight courses at the time, lifetime access. There are 17 now. Those people who paid at that price have all 17. Like yeah. we, once you're a design suite member, we don't care. And we we expect, especially with accreditation in college, our prices will continue to go up. And so we always tell people like the best time to get in is now because of the way we're headed. Um, but I don't, people don't, you don't need Facebook ads to start. And in fact, it took me, I want to say six weeks of learning Facebook ads. Like I was just like learning, learning, learning them before I ran my first set and I had a budget of $700. So I ran the $700 budget. It was me just saying, have you ever wanted to be a fabric designer or a craft designer? I have this design boot camp. I would love for you to come. I mean, like very meekly, like, okay. So like everyone who thinks that like, oh, she like, she just made it happen. It was, it was scary at the beginning. It Mm -hmm. sucked at the beginning. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. Um, But in some ways I did know what I was doing, right? Because I knew who my people were. Like I just, I just talked to them. And so I spent $700 and I will tell you that month I made $10,000. But like, from warm at 18,000 to 10,000 on total cold, I was like, this is going to work. Yeah. 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 I I love that, that story about getting started and just making all those personalized videos because so, so many times I think people, they they have this dream about building an online business and how they're just going to automate everything from the very beginning. And they're just going to uh, put a course together. They're going to run an ad and the re- ad's going to go to a sales page and they're just going to magically make sales. And then they, they're living on the beach. Right. And it just doesn't work that way because the, the level of marketing skill that you need to create, say an automated webinar and to run ads that are going to convert and then to generate sales on the back end and the whole follow-up process, the level of marketing skill and automation and even technical ability that you need to make that work is is pretty high. Whereas someone could just do what you did, like the same amount of time, actually a fraction of the time it would take you to learn and implement and, and do all that stuff and get good at it. You could take a fraction of the time, just do what you did, make these personalized videos for people, and you will make, you will make way more sales and be way more profitable. You will make your first $10,000, $20,000, whatever, in a matter of a couple of weeks, just because you did the personal outreach, and it takes very little marketing skill because you made that personal connection. And that's really the most important thing is that people feel like they're, you know, that, that when you make a promise, you're going to deliver that if they have a problem, you're going to take care of them. And when you do that and you make that outreach and you make that personal connection, people feel like they know, like, and trust you. That is what generates sales. Yeah, I, I especially in our society right now when there are so many scams, there are people who do not follow through. And um, I think I heard you say this, Leah, on something else, like the big promise that people keep making out there, it's just, if I'm being honest, it pisses me off. You know, I tell people it's going to take you three years. You're going to spend a year with us, but it's still going to take you three years. And does that make the sell always? No, because no one wants to hear that. They want to hear that they're going to make money in the first 12 weeks and they're going to make $100,000. And so we are very 
upfront about what it's going to take. And we're like, if you think you can do it in three months, then you must be way smarter than every college student that's going and doing a four-year degree because that's how long it takes to get just a degree. Now let's add on an MBA. Like people, I'm like, let's have some realism here about how long it takes to build a business. And I think we've seen it. Uh, I know for the people, the type of people that we attract, we are like the not the real marketer type. So we are very, very real with everything. And I'm very frank. Like if anybody throws out a number at me of what their goal is, how much they want to make, I'm always like, hey, I am not going to sit here and tell you, yeah, you're going to make that in 60 weeks or six weeks or you're going to do like, I'm not even going to tell you how much you can make. That's up to you. I'm going to provide you the support. that, And I'm like, we're not going to be those guys or those people that are out there promising the world because that's just not real for most people. And that's where you can get into a slippery slope with the FTC. Like there's all kinds of different things that are going on in this space. And I think people are just loving the realism. Um, at least the people that we attract, they're like, yeah, like, thank you. I'm so sick of the, the people, the Facebook ads and the whatever telling me I can do X, Y, and Z. But I've been around long enough to know if I could do that, I'd be making a lot more money than I am right now. <laughs> well, also, why are they teaching? Sometimes I'm like that. I'm kind of like, my favorite is there's a lot of teachers in my industry and they're all making, if they're lucky, 50000 maybe 80000 a year. And so that's why I'm willing to drop out like how much I was making because very often, the, like, and then they're teaching something that's totally like difficult, like no one's going to get. And they know this. They know that 90% of their clients are never going to do it. We go into it going every single one of our clients, every single member of our program should be able to create a profitable program, period, like profitable business for themselves. And when you go into it, like thinking about the individual, I literally go into it thinking, if my daughter joined this program, how would I feel if she doesn't get the support that she really deserves and needs? And so I think it's like the way you go about it and people are just going into it as Todd was talking about, like, how do I get it automated? How do I get it? And I went into it almost the opposite. I was like, how do I give so much personal attention to my people that they can't say I didn't do everything I could to get them there? Well, could you just sprinkle in just some tips on that? Like, how do you really keep a personalized feel as you scale <laughs> and get huge? Oh, yeah. And, and without burning yourself out too, right? Yes. Yeah, this is hard. So definitely having coaches, right? Like, so you have coaches that you're training and helping you out. We went from one design suite program to breaking our group into three groups. So it's like mini design suite programs within design suite. So now they have a smaller feel. One of the number thing, one things we got asked within the first six weeks that we started in the program, it was just me coaching every week. Mm-hmm. Someone came to me and goes, hey, Karita, we'd like to talk to each other. And I was like, huh, what? And they were like, we'd like to like hang out with each other. We see each other on our meetings, but like we don't know each other's stuff. And I was just like, well, I am not doing a Facebook group. Those are nightmares. I'm not going to do it. So they were like, but please, please, please. I was like, fine. Like this is like, I'm like, I'm like fighting it. I was like, fine. I just want to teach you guys design. But if you want to talk to each other, I'll make you a community. So we're in Kajabi. So I make them a community. So they all start chatting with each other. They love hanging out with each other. About three months after that, they're like, hey, Karina. And I'm like, what? Um, we like want to see each other's faces. And I was just like, what? They're like, we want to like, you know, talk to each other and like talk to each other about what we're winning and what we're designing and hanging out. And I was just like, seriously, guys, fine. You know, I'm like kicking and screaming. So instead of me teaching every single week, it turned into what we called. And here's the thing. I do crazy things. We brought every single person in the program into a meeting to have a discussion. I think at the time we had like 50 or 60 people. They all came into one big meeting. And I said, okay, guys, I keep getting this thing. You guys all want to talk to each other. Like, yeah, we want to talk to each other. I said, all right. So like, do you guys want to meet as groups like every other week or what? And they're like, yeah, that's what we want to do. I was like, what are we going to call it? And I made them name it. And then they took a poll. And they named it squads. And I was like, great. Okay, so now they get squads. So now I'm only teaching twice a month and they are meeting in squads twice a month. So it actually helped me. And furthermore, and we could have a facilitator in those groups. And then furthermore, they got really excited because they got to talk to each other. A year after that, we started doing live retreats. So some people would come together. We would go do something. It was really fun. Well, one of those groups, it was January, I think, of last year. I let them all join a Marco Polo group, which Marco Polo is an app where it's like video talking, but you can go back and watch it and it can happen in real time. 
Anyway, I let them all do this. I had before that I'd started like a screencast. So like when I go to a museum, I'd show them all this stuff and tell them how it relates to design and how they should be using it. So it wasn't far off from what I was already doing, but um, they started this Marco Polo group and they were like, Karina, we want this all the time. I was like, this is a nightmare. There is no way I can monitor all of you guys talking on this app. And they were like, we don't care. We like love it. Like, Seriously, in my community, people go on vacation together. They've become best friends. They go hang out. They meet each other for lunch. It's like crazy. And they're all over the world. So it's like insane. And they like can't wait to get together. And so um, so anyway, I was like, okay, fine. We're going to do it. So we started with a single Marco Polo group until it got to like 100 or 200 comments a day. And we were like, there's no way we can do it. So then we split into three groups, which is where we're currently at right now. As the community grows, we'll just add a fourth group, a fifth group. And so they're kind of in their all their own individual groups. But I am going to tell you, Marco Polo is everything. It For us, it is everything. Because face-to-face, being able to talk to people is really where it's at, not just writing in a community. And so when someone gets on my stars, my elite group, those are my upper groups. They're together in a Marco Polo group with me. They see me when I'm brushing my teeth. They see me when my hair is wet. They like it is very real. And so when Emily comes on, which she did yesterday and said, guys, I am I have this idea for meal planning. Okay, we're designers, but we're all mostly moms and other things as well. She goes like, I'm having an idea for meal planning. What if I like do a recipe book and we put it on Amazon and then we do it? I'm like, yeah, that's a great idea. And then Char gets on and says, I think you should do that. And Brenna gets on and says, you should do that. Guess what? Just compounds peer critique that you should do something, right? Yeah. Then also if you have, vi- I mean, we're a visual group, right? So if you are working on something and it's not working, you flip your camera around. You go, I'm an illustrator right now. This is not working. And a coach is able to come on immediately and go, oh, you just need to switch that to that. Mm-hmm. And that's like a little thing. But like people get stuck in the programs all the time. But yeah. if you suddenly have support for that, that's everything. So yeah. I would tell you, And any of you who are starting a program, if you go into it thinking, I'm going to help people as far as I can, like I am going to do everything I can to make these people successful, it is really hard not to build a multi-million dollar program. I love that. That's beautiful. So I, what would be, I guess that is your one piece of advice. I mean, that's a really, that's a good one right there. One piece of advice to have people. (laughs) Yeah. Do what your people ask you to do, even if you're fighting and screaming, and which I was like every step of the way. Yeah. Um, Do what your people want you to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Your people might not want community. Maybe they just want this kind of support. Mm -hmm. Build it for them. The reason we have 17 courses, because every time someone said, hey, Karina, we don't understand how to do workflow. I was like, we'll build a course for it. And we didn't charge people more for it. We never charge people more for it. That's awesome. So if people are really interested in what you have to offer, what you do, how do they find you? Um, well, I would say, first of all, if you want something fun and free, Make Art That Sells is my new book that is coming out. I don't know how many you're going to see on video, but this is what it looks like. This is the paperback version. It's my second book. My best book, my first book last year is so hot. It's called Design, Profit, and Prosper. It's an easy read. We always make these super easy reads. But Make Art That Sells is really fun because it uses... Uh, art history. So we're talking about public Picasso. We're talking about Vincent Van Gogh. We're talking about Monet. We're talking about Norman Rockwell. And we're relating it to all these things in a formula that we've built. And then if you lay out yourself in that formula, you can figure out how you can become profitable and how you can make art that really sells. So it's really, really comprehensive. It's very fun. It's an easy read. And if you want the masterclass for free, if you just go to makeartbook.com, makeartbook.com, and you, the second link is the masterclass, click on that, put in the code MAKEART, and you can get it for free. It's six lessons. There is a bonus launch party you can watch in there, some fun things that we do in there. And um, yeah, it will teach you a little bit about what we're really up to and why we do what we do. I love this. It's been such a fun discussion. I think you've opened the eyes, number one, just about... Um, how to actually make money with art, but also with what it really takes to grow to a huge, amazing organization that's you know changing so many lives. So thank you so much. So happy to be here. 
You've been listening to the Digital Trailblazer podcast. For show notes and information about today's guest, head to digitaltrailblazer.com. Now, if you love this episode, if you got some value, make sure you leave us a review and subscribe. And be sure to share this episode with anyone you know who could use help to build their business. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.